The next time you leave your house, head to the office, drop your kids off at school, or go to the supermarket. Ask yourself, do your surroundings help or hinder your day? Everything in our cities has been designed by someone for someone. The question is, has it been designed for you? Welcome to The Flow of Urban Life, a podcast by Kone that explores how urbanization and digitalization are transforming the way we live, work, and commute in cities. I'm your host, Sam Hughes, and in this episode, we look at the subconscious bias in our city surroundings and explore how we can step beyond them to create more sustainable and inclusive spaces. Architect Le Corbusier believed that a uniform standard for the height of human beings would improve the appearance and function of architecture. But when all humans are not the exact same shape and size, whose scale should we be working to? In the best-selling book, Invisible Women, Caroline Criado Perez says most of the data we use to design solutions today is based on the male as the human default. Caroline tells us how cities have been designed around the idea that work takes place in factories or offices and home is a place for rest and recreation. But this doesn't reflect the way of life for many women. According to Caroline, because women are much more likely to be engaged in unpaid care work, they have different travel patterns. Yet when city planners create new transport routes, they often prioritise suburb to city travel over suburb to suburb travel, which women are more likely to do when going to their kids' school, for example. By failing to distinguish things like gender in the data we collect, we risk excluding others. But this bias isn't intentional. It happens when we don't question the data used in the design process. Research has also uncovered racial and gender bias in the AI services developed by some of the biggest tech companies in the world. This is down to the lack of diverse data used to train machine algorithms. I spoke to Hannah Harris, who believes there's a clear need for people today to be involved in the development of their cities and to understand their design process. Her job as chief design officer for the city of Helsinki is to help the city identify how design and architecture can bring added value. Hi, Hannah. So you have a pretty unique job title. Why does the city of Helsinki have a chief design officer? If you think about Helsinki as a city, or obviously also Finland as a country, there's obviously a strong legacy in all things design and architecture and that remains one of the kind of big draws as well for people to visit yeah. here. But um, actually 10 years ago, so in 2012, Helsinki really kick-started a process where the city as a city organization decided that, okay, we're going to take design seriously and think about what might that mean in terms of uh, helping us develop this into an even better city. So in 2012, Helsinki was nominated as the world design capital. That's a kind of a touring a uh, global initiative that every mm. second year a city that uses design in various uh, strategic ways uh, nice. gets given this title. And in 2012, that was a sort of massive, um, massive uh, investment all year. There were hundreds of partners and projects all year and very visible things for the public as well that happened that year. But what, what really was the legacy that took on from there was that um, we kind of understood that, okay, there's something in design thinking itself, how how design functions and how that helps make stuff uh, better, make processes better, and, and importantly, kind of turn the lens on to 
the users, so the people, and of course in something like a city organisation, that's very important that, that okay, the services we deliver, uh, the reason why we exist, that how do we do that even better with, with the people of, in this case, uh, Helsinki. And uh, yeah, today in 2022, uh, that marks 10 years on that journey that Helsinki has seriously taken design. And, and on that 10 years, um, that has shown in, in lots of different ways, obviously, that path has grown, how design thinking is used across different sectors. Um, hmm. Literally, the latest figures are it's something like nine times more projects than even five years ago we work. We've got in-house designers, the team and an amount of that kind of thinking is growing across all the different divisions. We work closely with some of the best design agencies in Helsinki who are our close partners to work work on uh, delivering a better city, basically. And obviously with lots of partners like uh, universities, other cities elsewhere around the world and so forth. And um, in that bag, so so my role came came along as well. So the first edition of the chief design officer was in uh, 2016 to 2018, a, a kind of pilot edition that then the learnings from that were taken on board and, and I came in as the second one. Um, in 2020, literally the same time as the pandemic. Oh, perfect pandemic, timing. Perfect timing, yes. So, um, and uh, and my role is kind of, kind of a bit of a special role in the city. So it's um, it's a citywide role. I work with with uh, central administration, the mayor's office, and with all all the different uh, sectors across the city. But then I have one foot sort of tighter in the urban environment division. So we're working on lots of new initiatives as well that have more to do with connecting design thinking and And, um, and and kind of architectural work as well with the urban design, uh, urban environment uh, matters. So I'm I'm really like a connector and uh, bringing bringing ideas and people together and and finding places and ways where we should work even better with design or with architecture, connecting them inside the city and to partners outside and very much to conversations elsewhere in the world. Yeah, nice. Mm. Now, in this all, uh, in the design thinking and throughout all these phases, so we're talking about bias. Bias in the design phase can lead to non-inclusive products, services, and even cities. How could unintended bias affect something like urban planning? I suppose that that's one of the key questions that has driven lots of the design work that's that the city of Helsinki has done. So, um, if there's any given issue, and I'll I'll kind of start from elsewhere than urban design as well, but any given issue, let's say how to deliver housing services for disabled people, for instance, hmm. that are we doing it in the right way? Are we even looking at who who we're working with or who this service is delivered for? And how do we kind of turn the lens to make really make sure that we've taken all the different voices and all the different needs into consideration in, a, in something like a city that's obviously a different task, a di- difficult task. You don't yeah. have, um, often people ask, oh, how do you like make the voice of the citizens heard? Obviously, there are lots of different voices and they can be contradictory as well. So yeah. So um, that that's kind of one thing, but making sure that you really grasp what you are dealing with and are ready to challenge also your own kind of assumptions about that is is, is crucial there. When it comes to urban design, um, The, one of the difficult issues, of course, is that these are long, slow processes. You're working towards something that happens somewhere several years down the line. Yeah. And at the same time, obviously, um, people who are going about their everyday life, they experience things here and now as well. So so there's that kind of managing expectations 
of different people sort of now and what what might happen in their lives or their children's lives or or so forth somewhere somewhere um down the line also um if you kind of look at uh, in any given city i suppose there's um certain groups of people might be more um keen to sort of take part in stuff and be active about what's happening in their city and and some yeah. others less so and uh one one important thing there is as well how to um for instance we we've been working quite a lot with schools in terms of kind of architecture and design education that do you have a sort of basic understanding of your immediate environment you know the school building mm. the park around it your your neighborhood of appreciating um those places and spaces yeah. and then uh through that kind of appreciate appreciation um also being in empowered to have certain tools to think that okay i actually have a say as well in how my city might be in the future or mm. or might uh want to do something about it somewhere later later down the line so we've had really like fantastic projects where kids have been doing stuff in schools about their immediate environments as well and and I very much believe in that that uh, design and architecture touch upon each and every one of us and and there's a connection to our everyday lives. The data and processes we use to design things can reinforce stereotypes about what people do and how they behave. But when we question what we're creating or rather who we're creating for, they can also help us step beyond stereotypes and build more sustainable, long-lasting solutions. I spoke to Juha Martikosinen about how Kone uses data to program the algorithms for Kone's elevators and got his thoughts on how we could eliminate bias. Hey Yuha, for the benefit of our listeners, could you just tell us what your role is at Kone? Well, at Kone I'm the uh, head of flow intelligence. In practice, um, I lead a product development organization or a tribe as as we call these units at Kone. Oh, okay. And the products that we develop change or will change the way uh, smart cities and buildings are designed, uh, used, operated and and renovated. Unintended bias can get embedded in things that we design. When it comes to elevators, I can imagine their role is to get people where they want to go in the fastest way possible, right? Yeah, yeah. To minimise wait times, elevators might prioritise floors that are furthest away, such as the upper and lower floors. People on the middle floors may see the elevator pass them by more often. This is a very interesting and challenging topic also. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe to start with, we can probably agree that, um, let's say, the target to, to minimize waiting times is kind of uh, acceptable, right? But we don't like waiting in general. And if the elevator is full, it probably won't stop. In this very simplified scenario, this type of programming could lead to socioeconomic bias. Penthouses, luxury restaurants or executive level offices are often on the upper floors. So people that hold a higher social standing could be prioritized. What do you think about that? And could we optimize elevators for a more inclusive people flow experience? In Finland in general and in cities in Finland, uh, we take these things about accessibility or um, equality in in space quite seriously. We just let this year done quite a lot of work around that as well in terms of urban planning and and trying to offer tools for our planners and designers to be aware of the choices and issues at mm. what you do somewhere how that might affect something else and and how you might try and take into consideration those different issues that are translated into physical space itself or 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 how 
socially or culturally different groups and issues can be part of making a city. If we understand that there is this unintended bias and, and mm. sometimes we cannot just avoid bypassing and so on. Yeah. So we would need to take into account better these these biases. I guess that it would it would mean that we would need to understand, let's say, people's intentions and the context better. And we do have already and the technology exists uh already mm-hmm. to some extent. We have smart sensors and edge analytics to to detect uh, personal characteristics like uh, mood and, and movement and posture. Yeah. And that could be maybe applied. That's crazy. In addition to artificial intelligence, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And how you were saying before that a lot of these voices can be a bit contradictory and you're trying to kind of sift through. How do you isolate the the kind of important voices that haven't been heard before but should be heard now? One thing I think um that's kind of crucial when you look at um participation issues into let's say planning questions also is that you will always have a you you can't end up in an end result well maybe sometimes you can but there will often be a situation that not every um opinion or every voice can be part of the end result it might be something different to what you know you wrote down in in somewhere the yeah. crucial bit is that people have an experience that what they have expressed has been part of the end solution and that they have an understanding at why uh, a given solution came out of of in some some process what what was there yeah. uh, at stake and and this is where it's often difficult that um it gets kind of muffled for people that that short term and long term at they might be um you know taking part in a questionnaire about uh, some change in um, uh, let's say um a building project coming somewhere near nearby yeah. and then the actual end result happens so much later down the line that they've kind of in in the interim sort of forgotten or don't yeah. understand that what was it that i <laughs> i took part in in the first place and there's something that we um are setting up at the moment that's tackling this kind of uh, contradiction of the different timelines so it's not a new uh, method as such but cities haven't been working with it so much it's called placemaking and which takes uh into consideration that you'll take a place typically it will be a, a central uh public space let's say that in a neighborhood of Helsinki a central square for instance would be a good example yeah and um you as the starting point you take really the strengths of that place before you change something that you look okay what's here already what's the narrative and story of this this yeah, place what who, already works exactly who are the residents the businesses that are around there um what whatever it is in that particular neighborhood that's important and you bring them along early on before yeah. anything happens and and um and importantly as well um what what sometimes is difficult for organizations like cities that you you have to be able to experiment and do quicker stuff as well quick and dirty stuff and easy and light <laughs> stuff where you might experiment that okay we know that in this square there will be a bigger let's say infrastructural change in three years time or so right now in the interim we'll try stuff out and we make sure that those things that we experiment and do together with the people uh, produce data that is taken back to uh, the designers table for those sort of long term changes yeah and so we are currently um now setting up uh, these kind of things um starting starting this summer actually across Helsinki where we are identifying spots like that where there's a um lots of change perhaps happening and where it would be very important to work 
work more closely with different communities, businesses, residents of, of those areas to um, see what we can do and, and also as a city be more ready to experiment. And in general, do you think we should design people flow experiences for the majority or the minority? It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, yeah. And I guess that we shouldn't uh, plan uh, either for the minority or, minority or the majority because both are, uh, both are important groups. Mm. But it's 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 true that in in many cases it's likely that the minority, for example, suffers from the design decisions more. And if you, for example, consider a, a shopping mall where mm. you typically move around taking the escalators, right? Because yeah. escalators are typically visible; they're easy to find, and so on. Then, if you need to use the elevator for some reason, it might take some effort to find the elevator elevator yeah. in the first place. An elevator that would take you to the right destination floor, right? Oh, yeah, in some malls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because it's, it's from, from the waiting time point of view, it's kind of optimal in many, yeah, many cases. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, especially when there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of traffic demand, especially yeah. from the bottom and the top floors, then it might happen that because the elevators tend to become full on the mm. top or bottom floors, then the elevators need to bypass yeah. the um, middle floors. Right, okay. And that kind of results in the bad service in, in some cases, especially yeah. with simple simple control algorithms that are not capable of, of uh, let's say, estimating uh, the, the passenger traffic demand, for example, the number of passengers behind the uh, elevator yeah. calls. Yeah, nice. But what are some of the other biggest challenges to inclusive placemaking when it comes to the city's short-term and long-term development projects? Well, perhaps exactly that. I think one, one thing, of course, is that... Uh, now, for instance, when we're in the process of trying to set this kind of activity up in Helsinki, that you, first of all, try and identify spots where it really makes a difference, that you are identifying things where there's change happening and mm. you can time it, time something experimental in a, in a nice way there so that it doesn't end up being, um, okay, this nice thing was done, but let's let's get back to business as usual. Yeah. But it's actually something that contributes to um, a longer sort of trajectory of of that place in Helsinki, for instance, we have three uh, dedicated areas that are called these urban renewal areas, which have been selected as that. There's uh, yeah, let's say big rail investments coming, infill mm. building, uh, certain social and demographic factors, and lots of different factors that have contributed to that. Okay, these areas will be under under kind of there's lots going on. Yeah. So these would typically be places where it would it's very important to have stuff going on early on with the people. Um, so, for instance, this coming summer, we're going to be doing some experiments in um, a neighborhood called Malmi in North Helsinki, oh, where yeah. where there are some really interesting public squares that that have quite a lot of potential, actually, and, and sort of active active groups that want to get involved in trying stuff out there. But likewise, similar things, um, of course, in places like um, city centers that all across the world are are under a lot of battering, not just because of the pandemic, but of mm. course everything, change of retail, how people work and so forth. And um, and Helsinki has now in the past two summers done quite nice experiments around bringing um, businesses, restaurants together in slightly different ways, using public squares for um, re- rediscovering the city centre and kind of the people, p- giving people a at the same time safe, but really sort of nice way to enjoy um city spaces, so bigger outdoor terraces that have been done in Senate Square and Kasarmitori yeah. Square. Um, and uh, we're looking at how to kind of develop these kind of activities and also um, certain kind of summer street trials in the city centre that then contribute to vibrant urban life, but in a, in a way that um, in a way that 
um, gives something special, something that has a flavour of Helsinki. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you found with these experiments that it's actually raising awareness and you're seeing more proaction from people in society? I think so. I mean, often it's about that, you know, as a city, uh, also often our job is to provide a certain platform or a framework for mm. stuff to happen and, and how people can get involved easily. So, so for instance, uh, following these kind of things that were done really kind of pandemic first, that there was a desperate need to help businesses desperate need to yeah. make sure that people are safe but that there can still be some form of you know enjoyment of urban life and there's some form of you know you can go and eat somewhere and and uh, sit outside and and uh, fall in love with a certain square in yeah. Helsinki again but but out of those um trials importantly something like a city organization learns as well so you start looking more deeply that okay licensing department business department mm. events sector how do these work together and how do we um for instance um make sure that there's a smoother process in the future for instance about how outdoor terraces work and so just um recently we um uh, have published an updated to how how do outdoor terraces work sort of guide and and streamlined stuff so that it's it's hopefully works works better for businesses as well yeah and obviously then the um the people of Helsinki visitors and residents alike will will be the benefactors of that excellent and I'm really curious as well you do these short-term and long-term experiments how do you ensure I mean as we've seen over the last couple of years anything can happen and the world can change very fast So with the long-term projects, how do you ensure that, you know, it's still up to date when it's finished? Well, one thing that's coming out in, um, for instance, we've just done a big feedback round of uh, the stuff I mentioned in the beginning, that how do we work with designers and design teams, design agencies at, at the moment. And obviously that kind of strong service design mentality is becoming more uh, that it's taken or for granted and it's sort of swam into the city yeah. city machinery um better which is which is great but the thing i think that's important for the future then that still needs strengthening is more uh forecasting and and future design and this has come come out very strongly in in conversations we've been having across different sectors at the moment that that kind of um that kind of thinking and tools and also of obviously that connects to data as well that how do we use data in some somewhere like a city that how can that help us in even yeah. better decision making obviously um something like um you know rail investments these are these are kind of brick and mortar yeah. things that they they don't <laughs> um you can't change them so quickly either but i think it's also important to sort of not helsinki has very long term ambitious uh, climate aims for instance And part of that has been also how do we um, support public transport? What kind of rail networks are we putting in place in the mm. city? And um, and very importantly, we've continued on that path. You know, there's different kind of people. Um, obviously, last year and the year before, there's been sort of at how much are people moving around? What are they doing? So, um, yeah, and then obviously things like... Um, architecture building play play a big role in there as well and, and one thing we need to take into consideration is that when we design the buildings we may might make we may uh, make these design decisions like putting the luxury uh, hotels or restaurants and penthouses on the top floors yeah but why would we why would we do that mm. can we question. can we put those restaurants on the, in the on the middle floors 
It happens that often it's optimal when, from the waiting time perspective to dispatch the elevators to serve, for example, the farthest, the furthest away calls right. first. Okay, and in your opinion, how could we eliminate bias in these algorithms? Because obviously the, the computer or the, the algorithm itself is just going better wait times. That's all it cares about most of the time now. But how would we eliminate any sort of bias? Like I said, one thing is that uh, we can, of course, improve the algorithms mm. to maybe optimize the perceived experience better and the related metrics there. And, and for example, it, it many times your wait, waiting uh, experience depends mm. on the uh, context and situation many times. So when you're, for example, waiting for the elevator with a colleague and you're having a nice discussion, you don't mind of waiting a bit longer, right? True. Instead, uh, or compared to the situation where you are um, alone, late from the meeting. Yeah. And then you're kind of, you know... <laughs> of course. Um, and do you think it will go far enough one day where it will already know or estimate which floor you're probably going to go to next and therefore do another algorithm that will be like, okay, they're going here, they're probably going there, so let's do it this way. And they are discussing and that, that, that person is alone. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully. Wow. Or I don't know. What kind of biases that might uh, yeah. result in? But anyway, I guess that being able to understand what the context is, what is actually happening mm. at, at a given time on different floors. I suppose, with in terms of bias, it's almost impossible to remove it completely, right? There's always going to be something. If you're weighing up certain amounts of factors, there's always going to be a bias towards a certain element. And going back to inclusivity that we were speaking about earlier, how effective are things like policies in making our cities more inclusive? Um, I think in um, Helsinki and Finland in general, there's several things going on there that um, contribute to that. Obviously, something like um, Helsinki's had a pretty successful sort of housing policy, which has been a mixed housing policy for years. If you look at some other cities, we've um, been uh, pretty successful at uh, that the city has sort of developed in relatively equal manners across across the board. Hmm. However, of course, we we are also aware that there might you know, that we have to pay attention to certain segregation processes and, and keep an eye on that. But um, sort of mixed housing policies have been very good. Uh, so so that sort of policy level has been very good, coupled obviously with that um, all across Finland. But Helsinki has been very adamant to stick to that is, um, is uh, of course, education, that how, how do we yeah. provide uh, good education for every kid in this city, independent of their background, where they live and so forth. And um, and that sort of goes, of course, with how the schools and the school system works. But then, uh, <clears throat> very importantly as well, that what are those schools like? So, for instance, I mean, um, the school design in Helsinki has been a sort of big thing that we want to keep uh, doing school school environments that are relevant, and we can have have um, the best possible place to learn yeah. learn in a way. And then that also, of course, translates to other uh, do kids have. Um, possibilities to every kid independent of of their background to take part in hobbies and so forth things like that but then um in terms of kind of architecture and planning more specifically uh, we are currently working on a new architecture program for Helsinki which is uh more more like a policy program that sort of brings together different stuff that's done around architecture across the city so so that should be um ready later this year and that obviously looks at different things from from um the the sort of building building mm. that goes on the city's own public public buildings and of course the city's own housing 
But then also uh, things like uh, public spaces, access to greenery, very important across, yes. across the city in, in matters of inclusiveness as well. And and uh, importantly, how, how all of this contributes to climate targets as well. So, yeah, and in, in something like policy work like that, of course, it brings you back to, okay, how do you do participation work, for instance, or are we able to set things up such as... Um, such as placemaking uh, yeah. projects that really work with the people of Helsinki in different important public spots. So is this something where policies are updating constantly or is it quite a long process to update policies? Um, such such policies, um, I believe, need to be relevant for sort of X amount of years. Mm. However, of course, um, in a way, for instance, in this case, um, this is a policy which also is in conversation with national policies. There's been yeah. a national architecture policy that came out in January. I was involved in my previous job on on work, working on that as well, or set, sort of setting it up with different ministries. But it's um, that as well is something that uh, had been sort of, there'd been demand, or it, demand for it for quite a while uh, in, in Finland. But you have to um, keep in mind that you set targets so that they can work for several years, but they are in line with other targets that are happening in other right. policies in in somewhere like a city. So that's really important. So you don't sort of produce something in the left hand is doing something and the right hand is doing something else and they don't uh, meet anywhere. So that's yeah. kind of my, my, one of my jobs is to try and make sure that what comes out in from an architectural angle or lens that that actually connects and is in conversation with uh, other aims that have been set in the city sort of elsewhere in different different areas. Somewhere, for instance, like the climate targets. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, in a way, yes, you can update or you can review, let's say annually or biannually or whatever path you choose. But but the process itself of bringing such policies together is kind of an important part of the work, I feel. So that is, in a way, a tool to bring different people around the table, in this case, to talk about architecture and see why it might be important and then that, of course, te- uh, continues after the policy is ready. One size doesn't fit all. When we rely on so-called standards, universals and norms to define the typical user, we end up excluding people. And the things we create don't live up to expectations. Bias is often unintentional. That's why we must put in the work to question what we're designing and who we're designing it for. Policies and processes can help us catch subconscious biases before they're built into new solutions. But we also need to include a diverse range of people during the design process, both in the datasets we use and at the decision-making level. Hey everyone, this is Sam. Thanks for listening to The Flow of Urban Life, a podcast produced by Kone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be the first to listen to the next episode in this series and subscribe to The Flow of Urban Life wherever you listen to your podcasts.